Good evening. We were kind of <clears throat> commenting on how differently everyone prepares their talks, you know, as different teachers. And um, I'm more in the, like, kind of general sense of some topics style. And uh, my teacher, I just was thinking fondly of my teacher, Michelle McDonald, um, who I highly recommend if you listen to Dharma Seed, um, if you have the opportunity to practice with her. And Dharma teaches a lot of teachings on metta, and I just, that's where I learned. I got the first, like, deep flavor of metta. But she, when she would give talks, she, like, has, like, a pile of paper. <laughs> and they're, like, scraps of paper, different colors, kind of somewhere, like, they look crumpled or whatever, and she's just, like, sorting through them. So that was my example. What I want to talk about tonight um, is about building the path to our best home. Building the path to our best home. And what gets in the way on that path. What hinders our, um, our forward motion, our connection with metta and all of the Brahma-viharas. And so there certainly are a lot of things that could get in the way of metta. I'm imagining you've noticed a few over the course of today. Yeah. Uh, and so I won't be able to cover all of them. But um, I'm going to focus on the ones that have been like, most prominent, prominent in my own practice of metta and then how I've worked with those. And so that the main one is around working with um, shame and unworthiness and that feeling of not being deserving of our own kind attention and the impacts of that and how that impacts right Oren today said um, something about that we need to love ourselves to love others something like that yeah There's, there's a connection there, right? It's one mind and the metta is one thing. And so there isn't this distinction between self and other. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I wanted to invite you to imagine, like I like that, I loved that best home that Oren talked about last night that Sharon calls the Brahma Viharas your best home. And so I just would like kind of, I'd love to invite you to imagine your best home. You might imagine it kind of somewhere off in the distance. Your best home. And it can be whatever, like, can really embellish what would be your best home. What that would look like. And I do invite you to have four sides, at least four sides. Because I like the image of this home and these four sides, or four different doorways at least. Maybe you have like a sliding door, 
to the porch in the back, a big beautiful front entrance, a nice little like screened in porch door on the one side. But yours might be different. So let yourself really imagine that. But each of these doors, it's it's metta, the friendliness, loving kindness, karuna, compassion, is one door, one side, you can go in that way. Mudita, joy, sympathetic joy is another one of the doors you can go in. And then equanimity is on one side. Upeka. And so any of those doors bring you into this best home. And they you know, ultimately are the same thing. They're all one house. This one abode that we live in. And so in this imagery, you could imagine like it's like a couple miles away or something off in the distance and then maybe there's like a jungle between you and your best home maybe there's like a raging river or like a huge chasm (laughs) that you have to get over I mean maybe for you there isn't there's just like a nice little brook and a meadow which I hope is what you're experiencing but for me, there's certainly some of these bigger uh, obstacles as we go along. And so we can just imagine ourselves like, okay, here we go. We're going to set off and face what hinders us. And at the same time, I so similar to the, what I said earlier that um, you're already perfect, and you could use a little improvement. So it's like that with metta at the same time. So there is this way that we build this pathway to metta. We learn how to put our finger on our nose in the dark. But, um, and metta is just fundamental and intrinsic to our awakened mind. So both are happening. So there's like this image of like, here we go to our home over there. And also, it's all a mirage because we're already inside our home. Just like watching a movie about getting to our home. Something like that. But let's go with the movie for a second here. So in... um, Metta practice, like any like mindfulness practice, if you've come on a mindfulness retreat, you've probably heard of the five hindrances, the classic five hindrances to meditation. And these, I'm sure, have come up in your practice. We've talked about them a bit, like sleepiness, restlessness, uh, doubt about being here, about the practice, about the teachers, doubt about yourself, aversion, I love that one, one person said, oh, I just love everything. And I was thinking to myself, and I'm sure there's people that hate everything <laughs> out there. You're welcome. You're totally welcome. It's, that's welcome. Yeah. So there's aversion. And then there's also clinging and craving. That's the other hindrance. So these are classic. They come up in our meditation. They come up in our life. I'm not going to talk. We'll talk more in different bits and pieces as we go along about how to face those in our practice. But I'm really going to talk about mostly the like 
particular kind of aversion, this self-aversion that can arise when we do metta. And I and then I also wanted to read the Metta Sutta. Because I think it's so helpful to have that. It's so beautiful. And also it points to the potential obstacles to metta, actually quite clearly. It goes like this. This is translated by Gil Fronsdale. So to reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good should be capable and upright, straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly with few duties, wise and with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters, and should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. So that's parts really pointing to a lot of what can get in the way of metta. One should reflect. May all be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born. May they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. With loving kindness for the whole world, should one cultivate a boundless heart, above, below, and all around, without obstruction, without hate, without hate and without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding, here and now. One who is virtuous, endowed with vision, not taken by views, and having overcome all greed for sensual pleasure, will not be reborn again. So this is the Metta Sutta. And a few things that I want to point out here in terms of looking at like what can hinder Metta. One thing that has always struck me about it is this piece around living lightly and with few duties, contented and easily supported. So what I hear in that is like, there's a way that busyness can hinder metta. And that really feels so true to me. So true. Like, um, I can notice it, you know, when I'm busy and preoccupied with what I need to do and I'm like running errands or something like this or going to a store or grocery shopping with that kind of mind, I'm much less likely to be oriented to the human that I'm interacting with and having that like friendly attitude. How are you today? How's it going? And I so admire people who do that. It's one of the things I really want to develop. 
but I'm from New England, so we don't do that. <laughs> uh, but I admire it. Yeah, I want to cultivate that, but it's way less likely that I'll be friendly like that if I'm busy, distracted, hurried. Yeah. And even, um, yeah, like thinking about it with my son, with my toddler, the distinction when, like, we're trying to get out the door, and if I'm busy, <laughs> like, we have a time frame, oh my God, that's, like, so painful. You know, if, we're, if I, if we have, if it's spacious, I can be like, ha, 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 you just ran in the other room and put your, I don't know, shoe on your head. <laughs> like, but if, like, we need to get going, like, we're five minutes late, it's like, I don't like, put your shoe on now. You know, like that kind of distinction. So it's just really clear about that piece, just busyness, basically. And how can we structure our lives, like, if it's at all possible? And it, for some of us, that may, really may not be. But to have a little bit more space so that we can allow metta to be there in the field. There's also a lot in this about um, one skilled in the good. So our sila, our ethics or our sila are central to being able to practice metta well. So one skilled in the good, one should be capable and upright. I also love the straightforward and easy to talk to. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like, maybe we, we should all practice nonviolent communication, you know, as a part of metta. Oren has a book about that. <laughs> In case you didn't know that, you should read it. Yeah, and then also this, this one about holding to views, this part, not taken by views. So in the, the air, the, also the piece about arrogance. Uh, so just that sense of like when we're holding on to right and wrong, my view is right, you're wrong. This can hinder metta. So holding our views lightly supports it. Yeah, and then there's this um, this part, and should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. Should not do the least thing that the wise would criticize. And this is when, well, we can get into like, I can get into shame territory pretty much almost at any time. But this, in particular, this concept of like being criticized Right? And like, what's the distinction? So I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the distinction between like having remorse and caring about our impact and this quality of like of an unuseful shame. Right? So this the Metta Sutta is pointing to like it actually it's good, it's valuable to care what the wise think about you. Or whether the wise would criticize your behavior. That that actually could be useful. And so within um, early Buddhism, within Theravada Buddhism, there are these two words called hiri and otapa. Hiri and otapa. And they're, they're called the um, two guardians of the world. They're considered beautiful qualities. Hiri and otapa. 
And so I'm really working with the translations. But common translation for Hiri is moral shame. Moral shame. Uh, and Otapa's moral dread. Yeah. And so sometimes it's a little hard to be like, how is that? How are those beautiful qualities? You know? Um, so I, I was. I've been actually spending a lot of time like listening to talks about hearing Otapa and wanting to understand them more because I'm so interested in shame right now and unhealthy shame. So I'm really trying to distinguish like what is what is useful and skillful and what's not useful and skillful. So I like these other um, ways of defining hearing. So here's one. Um, Taking earnest care with regard to one's actions in refraining from non-virtuous actions. Like having a conscience. Taking earnest care with one's actions. And then another one, another translation for otapa is consideration for others. So often hiri is like more the internal conscience and otapa is more that external. So it's more like the wise, what the wise would criticize. Peace. So consideration for others, having a sense of conscience about your own alignment with your values and what matters to you, and the consideration for others. And this is where we can start to see a big distinction between what I would call, and many people call, toxic shame, which is the feeling of, like, I'm bad. I'm bad, there's something wrong with me. That pattern. Even saying that, I can, like, feel it in my chest. It's so painful. So it feels a little like anxiety arises a little when I touch it. And just this feeling of wanting to curl in and sort of hide. And so one thing that I've really learned and noticed about this distinction, like taking earnest care with regard to one's actions and having consideration for others, is that actually that kind of shame... And turning in doesn't support uh, consideration for others, actually, in, in earnest care. That actually what supports that is deep self-love and self-confidence. Deep self-love and self-confidence. So I um, ran an organization for about a decade where we taught meditation retreats for teenagers, like all over the country and and beyond. And one of the things I did was set up a system of feedback. And with a really dear mutual friend of Orrin and I, Mickey Cashtan, it's very quite fortunate to have her guidance and mentorship. Um, yeah, and so I was really trying to shift structural power dynamics in the ways that leadership and power over and hierarchy within organizations um, is done. And so one of the ways was to, to really invite a lot of feedback and be open to a lot of feedback, which I got. <laughs> it's really painful sometimes. And this really profound moment, I was um, in a facilitated feedback call with someone who was a worked with us, and Mickey was there to facilitate it. And this 
before we started, she just turned to me and was like, you know, I just want you to know, Jess, I have really deep respect for you. Very deep respect for you. And I'm holding that completely. And I hope, and can you hold that for yourself as we go into this feedback conversation? It was so revolutionary that basically that metta and then me holding metta for myself allowed me to actually hear, allowed me to actually attune to what this other person was feeling, thinking, needing, wanting, trying to communicate. You know, rather than like shutting down or going into defense uh, or just blocking it out or whatever things that we do when we feel shame. Such a profound moment. Like, whoa. Receiving feedback. Hiri and Otapa, you know, these kind of neighbors of this, requires this, like, requires metta. Deep metta. So I just really think it's an important thing. I also was listening to um, a conversation with the poet uh, David White. He's quite a beautiful poet. Um, and he, had, he tells the story uh, that a long, a long time ago, <clears throat> when he was in his early 20s, he was a musician, kind of a traveling musician, and he was in northern, I think they were in Scotland, playing music. And then about to go home, he's with this one other guy. He said they're both quite poor, didn't have a lot to their names. But David had this like nice warm sweater on, and this other guy didn't, and it was cold. And they were standing on a train platform waiting for the train, and David's train was about to arrive. And this guy had like three or four hours to wait for his train. So David was going to get on the warm train very shortly, and then his dad was going to pick him up, and he was going to go home in the warm car. And he had the sweater on, and he kind of recognized this other guy's really cold. But he was like, I... I really like my sweater. <laughs> this is, I'm not going to give it to him. So he didn't give him the sweater. And this is probably, I actually don't know how old David White is, but 50s, 60s, maybe even older. And it, it still is in his heart and mind that 40, 50 years ago, he didn't give this guy his sweater. You know, it's lived with him and haunted him. And so what he talked about is like at some point he just let him, he, it was almost like he surrendered to the pain of how he had acted in that, that moment. He, just, he said he spent about an hour with it, with this remorse. And then the result of that was, he's like, since then, I always give stuff. I always give it. Because you really examine, like, what was, going, what was I so attached to? Why didn't I? What was going on for me? You know? And so he gives. It shifted something in his behavior going forward. And so that's the value of like a healthy remorse, a skillful remorse, of coming out in a like developing connection and, and having an onward leading energy to change our actions and to care about others more fully, to be in more connection with others. That's the healthy kind of remorse. 
or guilt or, you know, all these words that are used and get complicated. So I think that's really healthy and useful to think about. But again, you know, if David had gone into a spiral of self-hatred, you know, where would that have gone? That kind of goes down and into a lot of suffering. It doesn't usually come out into connection. So that's where we're trying to head uh, with this practice. That's what metta would do. It moved into metta. Generosity. Okay, so what is this, what's often called toxic shame? This feeling of um, unworthiness or, you know, there's a lot of words like self-hatred. It's kind of feeling that there's something wrong with me. Or it must be my fault, there's something wrong with me. There's this very classic story um, with the Dalai Lama. You've probably heard it. And I did a little research about it leading into this conversation. Um, where there's a story, it was, at, it was like a mind and life. Like a bunch of teachers like Jack Hornfield and John Kabat-Zinn, Sharon, <clears throat> were meeting with the Dalai Lama. And they, someone asked him, you know, what do you do when someone really struggles with self-hatred? And then the story goes that the Dalai Lama and the translator like went back and forth a bunch. And we were like, because he was like, I don't, he didn't understand what the word was, what that meant, self-hatred. That's the story. Uh, and then finally he says, oh, the Dalai Lama says, I thought I, I knew a lot about the mind, but now I'm learning something new, that this is a thing. Right, so there's a story that, like in that, at least how he grew up or whatever, that wasn't, that wasn't a struggle, and it it sort of makes sense when you think about how, like the Buddha taught, like oh, just just start with metta for yourself, and radiate it outward from there. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, okay, <laughs> what, what does that even mean? You know, and even in the Navasudhi Maga, the commentaries a thousand years later, it was like, yeah, okay, obviously you start with yourself, right? And that's like so often not what's easiest for people, yeah. Um, and another kind of version of that story with the Dalai Lama, it was like here at IMS, and someone saying, you know, how do you work with unworthiness? And I have this. See, one of these papers. Anyway, he said something like, oh, no, 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 that's just wrong. <laughs> Stop thinking like that, that's wrong. <laughs> something like, and apparently there's like, you can find the recording of him saying that. That might be useful to like pick that out and just like put it on repeat <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> I mean like, no, that's wrong. But no, Stop. <laughs> yeah. So, so yet we have many of us struggle with this, um, and I've, I've been exploring it even more because, as Oren kind of um, pointed to last night, I, I do a lot of study and practice and teaching around um, attachment theory, and 
the impact of our early relationships on how we feel about ourselves, how we are in relationship as we grow up. Um, and shame is a big part of that. Like it's a big, and I'm like even more and more um, learning about that. In, in the concept, what people believe and what really makes sense to me is that particularly when we're very young, um, this idea that we come into the world expecting the world to just meet our needs, that this is a kind of a biology, it's very natural. Uh, it's so sweet. Like, that's the innocence of a young child. It's like, yeah, why not? This should happen. And in the, in the, with, with an attachment, the needs are really ultimately for protection, which I also love that, the, that metta is about protection. And that's named of the mother protecting her child. Uh, so the child needs that protection biologically. And when we have that protection, we have a sense of, um, okay, I'm going to be, I'm safe. Fundamentally, I'm safe. I belong. And then from there, I can go explore the world. Right? But when we don't have that, what the infant does actually to feel safe enough you know, there's this quote that's really, like, sort of devastating, but also makes sense, is that it's safer to be a sinner in a world with, led by God, a God, than it is to be in a world run by the devil. So it's kind of an intense way of thinking about it. But this way that for, for young children, it's like, if, if I can decide it's my fault, there's something wrong with me, then, then I have a, a glimmer of hope that I can change it. Glimmer. It's actually a kind of self-agency, a form of control. Like, okay, so there must be something I'm doing wrong, and, and I'll fix it. I'll change myself. I'll fix myself. And then I'll get the kind of attention or the care or the protection that I need. Yeah, so there's like an intelligence to that, rather than the like total overwhelm that might happen of thinking, like, I can't. It's completely unsafe, you know, in this world. So, um, a lot of days, you might have heard this, um, the invitation with, when we have trauma, different kinds of trauma, often what we ask, you know, based, and we have behaviors that come out of that. They're protective, healthy, with their own internal logic and wisdom, ways that we act to protect ourselves based on our experiences. But often we ask the question of, like, what's wrong with me? Why do I do this? Why, why is my mind like that? Why am I... You might have done this to yourself today. Why do I get so distracted? Why do I... Why can't I do metta? Why can't I just love that person? Whatever it is. That's kind of, and the basic fund under that is, like, what's wrong with me? You know? But the invitation is to shift it to what happened. What happened to me? What happened to me? That, that then these like, protective mechanisms arose out of that. And as I talk about this, it's so important that we all come by it honestly. All the way back through the generations. You know, there's, no, there's like nowhere to place blame. Something is like, it's turtles all the way back. Or down. It's like that. It's 
turtles all the way down. Like everyone comes by, has come by this honestly, and here we are. We can understand. And actually a huge part of our healing is to develop understanding and compassion yeah. for everything that made us us, that made others them. You know. So, so some of us develop that pattern. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Well, what happened? <clears throat> Gives us a lot more um, possibility for healing. So, before I go into that, I just want to read this this poem, the Francis Saint Francis and the Sow. I love this by Galway Kinnell. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of Sal. I love that. You know, sometimes we, like, finish the poem at the the flower part and don't read the sow part and the sow part is like so awesome <laughs> right from the earthen snout through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail oh, the sheer blue milk and dreaminess of spurting and shuddering And it's like, what I, this sense you get is like the, the love, and then she's feeding her babies. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. Yeah, so I offer you that, like maybe you've discovered Sal's in you. That are spiny, hard, thick, full of slop, you know. And those two deserve this kind of gentle touch and blessing. So something that I'm really learning a lot about um, in terms of its relationship to shame and many of our other 
painful patterns is about grief. Grief. So I've had the good fortune of becoming, um, getting a lot of interaction with uh, this woman who's a, re- a retired professor and researcher in attachment. Um, she worked with like all the original uh, researchers, Mary Main, and worked with Bowlby's work. And so it's just been such a joy to be able to have a lot of connection with her recently. Um, and she has really focused on grief and the role of learning how to grieve in healing and repairing some of this early wounding. So she's, she's pointing out that, you know, so what happens, okay, um, this need is not met, some you know, sort of biological need for protection or comfort or soothing or attention or delight. And the infant or the young child's like response is to go into this like, oh, there's something wrong with me and develop these patterns. And this alternative is to grieve, to grieve the loss, that that wasn't possible in that moment without blame or shame for anyone, but just feel and grieve the loss of that. And really it's like that's true all the time for everything. Um, This woman, Mickey Cashton, who I mentioned, um, (laughs) our shared friend and mentor, uh, has this quote that's been so powerful for me. So she talks a lot, also Mickey teaches a lot about mourning, mourning, grieving. Um, And in the attachment research, it's called pathological mourning, when we haven't been able to really go through the grief of um, the loss and disconnection that we might have experienced. So Mickey also talks a lot about mourning. She says, mourning is what allows us to bridge the gap between what we see and what we long for. The gap of our helplessness without having to inflict violence internally or externally. Once we do that, once we mourn, on the other side of that, we can find some peace that makes it possible to choose how to respond without reacting. Okay, so there's a lot in that. So this is this is where, like, this image, like, one image that I got is like, okay, there's my best home over there. And I'm going along, and I'm, you know, okay, dealt with some busyness, dealt with some ethics. Going along. I just, like, see myself looking over this, like, giant chasm, like the Grand Canyon, and, like, my best home is over there. Sometimes that's what the shame feels like. And so this is what Mickey is saying, is, like, what we have to do is build a bridge of mourning. So our grief is what's going to build this bridge across that chasm. To, to the peace that our best home offers us. The gap of our helplessness. And that idea of without having to inflict harm on ourselves or others. So, and of course, like, 
it's like a similar mechanism. Shame and shamelessness. In, in one way. It's either like inflicting the violence inward or inflicting the violence outward. And this idea that mourning can bridge that gap instead. Yeah. And so what does that mean? It's like that song, the kid's song, like, going on a trip, you know, anyway, through the woods, can't go over it, can't go around it, got to go through it. It's like that. (laughs) Just got to go through it. Uh, And we can. We can go through it really tenderly at the pace that our systems need, really gently. Um, So this is not an invitation to just like to dive into our deepest wounds. We want to stay regulated. We want to stay regulated. So it's really just a sense. Um, this woman, Carol, who, who's the attachment researcher connected to, she talks about, like, we built this wall. We build these walls to protect ourselves. And, like, all that grief and loss is, and those overwhelming feelings are on the other side. And unfortunately, like, they leak through sometimes. But instead what we can do is we just can take one brick off at a time, look in, check it out. We can put the brick back after that, take it out again. So we just slowly build up our capacity. And we build our other skills. We needed that wall because we didn't have another skill to, to deal with the grief. So part of what we're doing is we build our capacity for metta, and mindfulness is we're building the ability to be with more and more intense experience without being flooded or overwhelmed or disconnecting. So really be tracking for that. Like I do invite, so I'm inviting us into some, and probably you have been already invited into some grief while you've been here. Many people I know when they arrive, like just cry when we start this practice because it sort of starts to naturally happen sometimes but you can just do that really gently and then go have a cup of tea and go for a walk take a shower do some mindfulness think about your benefactor receive metta touch a little grief have some tea yeah like take care in that way And also, um, we'll practice. Yang will talk more about compassion practice, but that's an important and helpful one when we're touching into this loss. How do we hold the grief? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to read this other poem that's often read in these spaces. It's by Naomi Shihab Nye, called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you count and carefully saved, 
All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all the sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So that's the promise of our touching the sorrow and the grief. the possibility of reconnecting with life in a deep, deep way. finish with some some hope um, or hmm, offering of confidence or something that like that you can do this that we can all do this that metta and mindfulness is bigger and much more fundamental like in our awareness is much bigger and more fundamental than than any loss, than any rage, uh, whatever it is that we're experiencing. Um, Sharon says, this was a very important image for me out of the Buddhist teaching where he said, the mind, your mind, my mind, is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And there are a couple of things to that. One of these forces, these forces that are visiting, greed, hatred, jealousy, fear, shame, they're not inherently, intrinsically who we are, but they visit. And they may visit a lot. They may visit nearly incessantly, but still they're only visiting. And then the Buddhist statement, it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. He didn't say it's because of visiting forces that we're terrible people or we're awful we're not good enough, or anything that we might say to ourselves. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. Okay, and one final poem. This is from David White. 
better. It's called The Old Wild Place. After the good earth, where the body knows itself to be real, in the mad flight where it gives itself to the world, we give ourselves to the rhythm of love, leaving the breath to know its own way home. And after the first pure fall, the last letting go, and the calm breath where we go to rest, we'll return again to find it and feel the body welcomed, the body held, the strong arms of the world, the water, the waking at dawn, and the thankful, almost forgotten, curling to sleep with the dark, the old wild place beyond all shame. Okay, so may we find that old wild place and also our best home. And we'll do it together. Yeah, I think the last thing I want to say about that is grief. Sometimes it is too big. Like the sorrows that we face are too big for one nervous system. So there might just be moments when we connect in with the collective. You know, like all of these people here. We're all practicing metta and trying to hold life with compassion. Thank you. Let's just sit together. So may we all find the old wild place beyond shame. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.